Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe. Hello. Hi. George Hoare. Hello. Hey. Myself, Alex Hochili. Welcome in particular uh, to all you dear patrons to the 2023 BungaCast Reading Club, where we will be focusing on three big themes, freedom, legitimacy, and globalization. So thank you to everyone uh, who has been with us through last year's syllabus and a big welcome. Hello. Very nice to see you to all of those who've joined us for this year's edition. We've uh, reflected quite a bit on what we did last year and the preceding years of the Reading Club and tried to make some changes, also incorporating some of the comments that we've received from you guys. And we've adapted and refocused the Reading Club. So you'll notice, for example, that there are fewer works, but they're longer, and we're going to go into them in a little bit more depth. And we hope uh, to us ourselves to get quite a lot out of it, um, and we hope you, listener, do as well. Uh, and it also, we also hope that uh, in focusing on kind of a narrower range of reading, it gives you something um, to get your teeth into and that we can have more of an ongoing dialogue um, about, well, what are effectively three very important books some more contemporary than others, but they all, I think, would count as classics of some sort or another. So the first four episodes of this year of, uh, are dedicated to Martin Hagland and his 2019 book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. It has a different subtitle, I think, in the UK, which is Why Mortality Makes Us Free. But um, in either case, that's quite um, explanatory, I guess, about the contents of the book. Guys, where did you first hear about Hagland's work? So I heard about it when it was um, kind of first released and getting lots of um, engagement and coverage uh, on social media and elsewhere. And it was two people I follow on social media in particular who alerted me to it. Um, so one is a former, is a friend of the pod and a former guest, Alex Gorovich. Um, and he, you know, he indicated he was very keen on it. And then also um, Jensen Suffer, who's uh, also in fact in comparative, li- an academic in comparative literature at Yale, and he also indicated on social media how much he um, appreciated the book. So they're two people whose views I kind of, um, you know, take seriously, even when I disagree with them. And so that suggested to me it was going to be important. And, it, you know, it was borne out by the by the commentary that followed and the kinds of reviews and engagement the book seemed to get. Yeah, I think I, I, think I bought it at that time, um, but didn't start reading it. It was one of those which was, you know, it was on the shelf. And I thought, this is... This is going to be one to kind of get my teeth into at some point, but never kind of got around to it. So it was good that we uh, we chose to do this because it allowed me to move from kind of guiltily thinking I should read this to actually reading it and engaging with it. So, yeah, please, please to start the year um, with a book that I felt like I should have read a while ago that I'm finally belatedly getting around to. Yeah, it always no, same, makes you feel book. productive. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good, right? You can be like, oh yeah, I've been meaning to do this for a while. Now let's, you know, let's properly do it. Yeah, and I think what uh, what struck me in reading it is how accessible it is. I mean, it's a philosophy book, obviously, um, but it's accessible and incredibly readable. Um, you want to spend time with yeah. the author, so so hopefully that should be useful really, for all of us. 
Yeah. Yeah, that really struck me, and I think uh, just to kind of say that it was um, it was kind of thrilling, to be honest. I mean, you know, despite the despite I've got some kind of misgivings about some lines of the argument, I guess we'll get into, but um, in due course. But the it was thrilling to read something that you know sought to tackle such a basic, profound question that I think anybody who is kind of you know um, you know a nor- kind of an ordinary, normal, reflective person would you know, think about and take seriously and to have like an intellectual work that's dedicated in that direction rather than being written for other academics and deliberately disguised behind walls of kind of phony erudition and obfuscation. That was genuinely, you know, like I say, that was genuinely thrilling to read. Yeah, I mean, just one final comment before I go into a little bit more depth on it. I, I guess what's also surprised me is how it's able to bridge, you know, kind of the intimate sphere and stuff which would be called kind of naffly the philosophy of life or life philosophy you know these books which are effectively it's philosophy but it's about to teach you how to live your life or how what kind of worldview you should have in your your kind of day-to-day existence which you know it's very much philosophy light and it's able to kind of broach topics which seem similar to that while also taking us on to um very profound terrain and and terrain which is necessarily uh political so i I thought that was really thrilling i mean i think in some ways it's quite a a traditional book within within philosophy in the sense that it's about kind of questions of wisdom rather than knowledge how do you live and it comes across as very humane it, it as phil said it's not like here is this distinction and this second part of the distinction has three parts and then you know that kind of analytical philosophy um kind of approach where you you, you kind of like yeah okay this this follows logically but this doesn't actually tell me anything about life about really anything of interest it's kind of a, a neat argument or very clever thought experiment so i think the fact that you know traditional in the sense of dealing with questions of death and loss and love and it's you know i think very refreshing for that for that reason that it does have that kind of really big scope but avoids all the triteness of the kind of the self-help or here's like popular philosophy way to live your life you know yeah. go and change this change that so yeah i think it's um yeah for all those reasons i was glad that i finally got the chance to 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 read it rather than it just um collecting dust on my shelf right and for those who haven't uh, come across martin Hagland, he's a swedish philosopher i think he's in his mid-40s now he's professor of comparative literature and humanities at yale university and he specialized in post-kantian philosophy critical theory and modernist literature if you look at his uh this this book we're discussing now as well as his three previous books there's an a very obvious interest in the philosophy of time so there was dying for time uh proust wolf and nabokov uh, in 20 which came out in 2012 um a book uh, before that which is radical atheism derrida and the time of life from 2008 and chronophobia essays on time infinitude 2002 and, and I feel that, I have to apologize to our listeners, Alex, for your correct French pronunciation and your terrible Russian pronunciation. But I guess that's yeah, cosmopolitans I, I, for you. I so. only I only started my Russian classes um, five weeks ago. We're working on it. I'll uh, okay. come back to me in a year. Okay. Um, so um, there's obviously this interest in time, and it's it's you know you listener who most likely have read, maybe not. Um, you know the, the the chapters that we've indicated. This idea of what you do with the time of your life is is almost a repeated repeated refrain in the book. Um, but the book is also, as we'll find as we go forward, about freedom. And people have asked us, I think, over um, the past year, for us to be a little bit more concrete about what we actually mean about freedom when we hold that up, as well as some other um, big phrases. We'll come to those uh, in later parts of the reading club. But um, obviously, today we won't 
be able to deal concretely with what we mean about freedom, um, not least because the questions of freedom come a little bit later in the book. Um, but I think this book, as we will go through it, will at least provide the right or- orientation for this discussion. So look, very much looking forward to it. Right. Um, I'm going to give you a brief overview of the book um, so that we have that, um, not least because the chapters and sections that we've indicated are obviously not the entirety of the first half of the book. Um, we've decided on selections of it so that we can dedicate future episodes more uh, in a more concerted fashion to the latter half of the book, which contains some more political arguments. So the book is about these two ideas, secular faith and spiritual freedom. Um I'm going to quote here, to have secular faith is to be devoted to a life that will end, to be dedicated to projects that can fail or break down. Ranging from the concrete to the general, I will show how secular faith expresses itself in the ways we mourn our loved ones, make commitments and care about a sustainable world. It's called secular faith because it is dedicated to persons and projects that are worldly and temporal. So the first half of the book is is dedicated um, to showing what is necessary about uh, secular faith. Chapter one is concerned with the questions of loss and mourning, about about how supposedly religious devotion can be and often is overcome by caring about others in this life. So Hagelin discusses how religious faith is fundamentally about eternity, in his view, and a flight from the worldly. This applies... Um, not just to the kind of big world religions, especially to the Abrahamic religions, but also to Buddhism, as well as any form of Stoicism um, in in Hagland's telling that seeks to withdraw from the world. And so Hagland um, conveys this theme throughout the first half of the book about commitment uh, and attachment rather than uh, withdrawal. Secular faith, um, by contrast to religious faith, is firstly having an existential commitment to a fragile form of life. Secondly, it is, a ne- it is necessary uncertainty that in having relations with others, we must trust them. And that brings risk, risks of deceit, of betrayal and loss. And thirdly, secular faith is or can be a motivational force. The fact that the things and people we love can be lost or uh, be compromised in some way requires our fidelity. So that should motivate our, our fidelity precisely because they are fragile things. Now, chapter two concerns uh, two different uh, confessions, a religious confession and a secular confession. So in order to do this, Hagland contrasts Augustine's confessions with a contemporary secular confession found in Norwegian author Karlova Knausgaard's My Struggle. And a very anti-Stoic theme comes out in this reading. Hagland urges us to commit to that and those that we love rather than retreat from them. Uh, he also brings in Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, uh, which is a similar reflection by an author on their own life. Uh, in doing so, Hagland emphasizes that death is the background that makes life what it is. And finally, chapter three, which um, actually we haven't suggested, uh, you know, as the selections from the book, because uh, it covers a lot of the same ground going through a long proof and discussion of uh, 19th century Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard as well, and uh, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac in the biblical story. Um, in that, just to give you an overview of what is in chapter three, Hagland pokes at the borders of where secular and religious faith lie, where they overlap and where they actually separate. So, for instance, uh, he looks at Abraham's motivations and beliefs. Will God actually bring Isaac back to life if Abraham sacrifices him? And if so, is Abraham really motivated by religious faith or by a secular faith that cherishes things in the temporal world? That is to say, quite obviously, his son. 
Hagelin's conclusion here is that Kierkegaard's vision of religious faith means ultimately being irresponsible, um, which is a little bit of a, a surprise when you read that. But the idea is that uh, in, in holding to religious faith, you're not being responsive to anything that calls your faith into question, even if it is the cry of your child. A quote here, this makes explicit something that is implicit in all religious ideals of being absolved from pain or loss, for, excuse me, from pain of loss. Moreover, God is completely irresponsible because he is not bound by anything other than himself. Only someone who is committed, who is bound by something other than herself, can be responsible. Only someone, is, only someone who is committed can care, and only someone who is finite can be committed. Thus ends the uh, first part of the book, in fact. The second half of the book concerns spiritual freedom and moves towards more social and political questions, and we'll deal with those uh, when we come to them in the next episodes. Um, but as here we said, we'll deal with the introduction, chapter 1, sections 2, 3, and 4, and chapter 2, sections 2, 4, and 6. Um, and we will, as uh, soon as this, after this episode comes out, uh, let you know what we will be discussing in the next episode, but it will most likely be chapter 4 and 5, and then followed by chapter 6 and conclusion, and then some secondary reading. One final thing before we get this discussion underway. Sorry, this has been a lot of me talking. The local reading clubs. Um, if you're new to us, there are, uh, or there have been over the past year, um, reading clubs in various cities around the world where people are getting together to read through the works that uh, we're discussing um, and to put together questions for us, whether in advance of the recording or thereafter, um, and also to be able to have your own discussions yourself. So um, we hope this can be a productive process and uh, we want to make a call out to all those who want to set up other reading groups. So um, let me just go through the list. So Amsterdam, there's someone there who wants to meet other people, uh, get in touch if you're in Amsterdam or, or the area. Uh, Berlin, there's a group set up there. Dublin, there's a group set up there. Groningen in the Netherlands, uh, there's someone looking for other uh, BungaCast listeners. Leipzig as well. London, there's an active group ongoing. Um, Milan, there's uh, someone looking to meet up with other people. Munich, likewise. Stockholm, there's a group going. Uh, there's someone in Tallinn, Estonia, looking for uh, other BungaCast listeners. Hello, if you're in Estonia. Um, there's a group in Yorkshire slash Northeast England. Uh, as well as people looking to meet up others in Glasgow or Edinburgh, as well as the east of England. Um, that's all in Europe. Uh, again, email us at info at bungacast.com uh, if you'd like to join one of these or if you'd like to put yourself forward uh, to set up one wherever you are, uh, do let us know. In North America, there's a group in Chicago. There's two people in LA who want to meet others, uh, likewise in New England. New York, there's a group that's ongoing. Philadelphia, there's two people or three people looking to meet others. There's groups in Portland, Oregon, Seattle, and Toronto. And then there are a couple of cities which have, you know, a, a handful of people who are looking to meet up with others and maybe haven't got a reading group started in earnest, which is in San Francisco or the Bay Area, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Washington, D.C., and Buffalo, New York. And then finally, uh, there are people in Sydney and in Melbourne who are looking for others to start up a group properly. So again, do get in touch, uh, info at bungacast.com or drop us a message on Patreon. And we will try to put you in touch with others. Also, let us know if you would like your email to be put in a post. It'll be restricted to those on Patreon, um, but a post so that uh, each local reading group has a contact person that uh, new people can reach out to. Okay, uh, let's get started with the discussion. No, that was that was really nice. I think a really nice summary. 
um, of the the first part of the book delivered very very sonorously. So yeah, thank you. Um, hmm. A nice way to kick things off. Hmm. Okay. Thank you, George. Um, we're trying to be nice to each other. Have you noticed? We'll try to keep this going. I wonder um, how long it's going to last <laughs> until we actually start discussing the first question. Look, the, Hagland says you should care for the important people in your life. And uh, that's what we're trying to do. Anyway, um, question first is of all, how do you care? <laughs> anyway, um, the, the uh, first question here, which I want to address, is Hagland right in arguing that much of religious belief, especially in relation to questions of morality and behavior, actually motivated by secular faith. So just for example, on page 10, he argues that the golden rule um, that you should do unto others as you would uh, want others to do unto you, that the golden rule does not require any form of religious faith. But on the contrary, genuine care for others must be based on this notion of secular faith. If you follow the golden rule because of some religious commandment, you do so because of obedience to God rather than care for another person. So is he right in trying to... um, kind of push back the cuticle of religious belief and say, actually, the reasons you care and do these things is for purely secular reasons. I've never heard that expression, push back the cuticle. He's giving Neither a manicure, I. a manicure to the hand really... of religious belief. <laughs> yeah. It came to mind just then. I thought it was good. I thought it was yeah. good. I'm going to, yeah. It's I, really odd. Really um, odd I kind of liked it. it. But I to answer the question and not be distracted by the the mode in which it was was posed. I mean, in some ways, I thought it's it kind of is a bit unsatisfying to be like, oh, religious morality, are you? So actually, you really need non-religious basis in secular faith, as you described it earlier, Alex. I think it's it's sort of I think it's fundamentally true, but is it's quite a isn't it quite a simple or quite a basic point that like oh, you're only doing what your religious morality tells you because you're scared of God and you want to, you're using others as a, merely as a means to get into heaven. It's like, okay, No, but that's, this... not, that's, not ex- that's not the order in which he makes the case. So it's not quite so, um, it's not quite so direct. So I think, I mean, the first I would roll, I'd jump back one stage and say, you know, the fact that he says that it's not that, he's not, you know, doing the new atheist thing of trying to demolish um He's trying to demolish kind of religious belief by contrasting it with scientific fact, but rather to say that religious belief in itself is um, not appealing, not worthwhile. And I don't think Georgie's, I don't think he quite says the way you put it, um, you know, that you're, that religious people are um, using others instrumentally. He's saying that if you would, you know, I think he said he had, accepts the fact that most religious people or people who are motivated in some way by religion are approach others with love but if they're there to be consistently you know they if they're to be consistently religious then those commitments will enter into contradiction and they won't be able to be consistently religious so that in fact the basis of most religious belief is secular in yeah. the fact and, that it's yeah. committed to the love, you know, or the commitment to um, to people who are limited and finite. And religious belief comes in as a prop to that. But that it's not simply kind of a supplement, um, but actually undermines undermines the that kind of um, possibility of um, ethical commitment to other people. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's Hegelin's trying to reveal, and he says he's making an argument to both secular people and to religious people. And at least as concerns religious people, the argument is to reveal to them that they already have in many ways a secular faith, but that their faith is precisely secular, that it is not, in fact, religious, and to be aware of that and, and, to, more go, than that, and to go all yeah, in if, on their commitment to it, right? Yeah, so if like, they are religious, then it will actually undermine their own commitment, their own kind of ethical system. Yeah. No, well, yeah, I don't know if undermine the ethical system, but it'll make them aware that their ethical system is already a secular one, that they could dispense with God, dispense with this belief in eternity, and it would, their faith in others uh, and their commitment to those uh, things and people that they love will still remain true, right? And yeah, that, harder. I mean, I think the point is it will be harder. That's the real difficulty. That's, well, that's, what, I gonna, don't, yeah. that's what I don't agree with it, it, to, to that extent that like to think that you could, by showing that a belief is um, contradictory or self-undermining, you could get somebody to dispense with it. It's like if you point out to um somebody who's religious like your morality is based is already in fact secular so therefore you should dispense with your belief in god and and in eternity i don't think that's how i don't think that i think that is it seems to me at least falling into that new atheist trap of like here is the the pre feuerbachian critique of religion i.e like this is there is a problem with your your logic my friend um rather than saying well actually here is an anthropological or sociological explanation for for religious belief, I might be being a little bit too harsh on Hagland um, because, but I think it's you know I think the the argument is 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 fundamentally correct, but I just don't know how much it's going to change somebody who has a religious beliefs orientation because it's not like you can say ah okay I've read this book and now I now I see this the this logical argument means that there is no God I don't think I don't think that's well it might but he's not but he's not arguing there is no god he's yeah, saying yeah. that you don't it's again it's a it's a different kind of line of critique I think I mean you know I mean I suppose it, we can't preempt the rest of the book because we haven't got there yet so the question of how far it's you know Feuerbachian as you put it George or not which is to say how far it understands religious belief not as um not as intellectual deficit or um just pure irrationality, but how far it arises out of um, you know social forces and contradictions and what have you. I mean, I guess we'll see how far he comes to that. But short of that, I think it's Feuerbachian at least in the in that it's humanistic in its approach, rather than simply kind of trying to batter somebody who's religious into um, you know batter them into subordination through drawing attention to the factual kind of difficult, you know, the inability to sustain um, religious belief in, uh, in light of scientific evidence or just mm. kind of trying to expose contradictions in their belief systems um, or, you know, trying to kind of expose the flaws of the scripture or whatever. So, I mean, I think yeah, to that extent, no. it's, you know, there has a humanist impulse that is at least the right line of approach. I don't think it's sufficient to overcome religious belief, but I think it probably is a necessary component of it to indicate that if you genuinely care about these things that you say you care about, then why do you need God? Because yeah. the theology will actually, if you're, you know, a consistent appreciation of the theology will actually pull you away from your humane commitments into reverence for, um, the supernatural, which yeah, goes beyond and, all of your actual commitments to people. 
and conversely that uh you know reveal that your attachment to god to this not even necessarily god because hagland is quite explicit in saying he doesn't want to he doesn't want to necessarily talk about god what he's talking about is any sort of um religious faith which seeks transcendence withdrawal. yeah super well or, and with, or withdrawal from the world it's about effectively about the eternal it's a, a, the eternal versus the worldly and the temporal and that's fundamentally yeah. what this is about um and you know that uh, those who will still hold you know despite their mourning whatever the mourning for someone they've lost that they hold to a notion of the eternal it's to that that is a mechanism to inure them from pain um more than it is necessarily a belief in 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 the supernatural a belief in god or whatever in the whole religious system um and that there's this constant tension that runs throughout for of the appeal of stoicism of protecting yourself from from the consequences of passion and the and the realities of, of real secular passion of passion for for the things in this life uh, yeah i mean I, I i i take that point that both of you made and i shouldn't you know misrepresent Hagland as being like richard dawkins type like everybody who believes in god is a is an is a fucking idiot but i think there is maybe this is what my um what you kind of started to say alex there is my not reservation but it's almost like the target is not religious belief so much as detachment um and that it's not really a critique of religious morality as much as a critique of kind of any <clears throat> shying away from the fact that this any basis of um i guess a philosophy or a theology that's based in love that has to be that has to be secular or has to start from it's grounded ultimately in certain points around finitude and all these things which i'm sure we'll get onto. um and i think yeah i mean maybe that is what he's trying to do more than kind of say here's here's a book that's gonna convert everyone into unbelievers instead saying here's the if this is the core of the morality of particularly christian christianity and here's the, the core of morality of kind of stoicism or buddhism here's how they're you know as ethical systems they're contradictory or self-undermining mm. i think and, also uh, he doesn't even if he doesn't address this directly i mean the other point with the new atheism is its ultimate hollowness you know it's the i mean it takes its energy from disabusing people but it has nothing, you know, beyond the, I mean, I, you know, beyond, I suppose. Um, it doesn't um, disabuse them. It disses them and abuses them. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Very funny. Um, disabuses. Whoa. Weird. All right. I thought we were supposed to be nice to each other these days. It didn't last. It didn't last. <laughs> Hagland hasn't converted me that much. Yeah, um, but I mean, I suppose uh, what I'm, you know, he sees the problem. Right, it's insufficient to be an atheist. You have to offer something positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, good. as a substitute. And he doesn't. It's not like he's. Um, it's not like he's coming up with his own kind of positive belief system to which he's trying to convert you. But he's indicating that there is, you know, kind of in the attachments that you have, there is already the basis for your ethical commitments in the world already. Right. So it's not like he has to derive any, you know, kind of out of ex nihilo, kind of come up with a whole new system to substitute for that of religious belief. He only he what he has to show is that our existing ethical commitments are, in fact, already secular. And if you try to make them unsecular, you actually undermine what makes them um, worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a criticism of of Hegland or at least one that um, 
Samuel Moyne in, in a very positive review of the book um, makes reference to, which is uh, this idea that what Hagland is purveying is spilt religion. Um, now, spilt religion is a term that was used by T.H. Uh, Hume, um, who, writing about uh, 19th century romantics, um, basically making the point that there's this religious impulse and that if it's not you know, directed properly at God, um, but directed elsewhere, um, you'll end up uh, with serious problems. Like, for example, coming to see ourselves as gods. And um, and actually, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> mm. um, so I, I, but but anyway, I, I'm just pointing that out there. We will return back to that theme, I think, much later on, probably in, in the last two episodes of, um, of the, our discussion of this theme. Yeah, and, and this you point. want to be careful considering yourself a god. I mean, Kanye came a bit unstuck um, <laughs> taking this, I, this I, uh, trajectory. I meant very much collectively, not not me um, yeah myself okay. i am very much a finite being sad as it might be to discover that listener or um, not <laughs> or not read the hagland and right, you know yeah. he, he says this is actually kind of you know heaven is a place it's where nothing basis, ever happens yeah it's yeah. the basis of it is the basis of freedom i mean i think that core contention which is you know kind of underscored in the at least the subtitle in the uk um it is the right one i think but i yeah. guess we'll get to that so I just want to throw one little thing in there, which is from um, a section from chapter one, which isn't in the our, the reading that we had suggested, um, but I wanted to throw it in there because it's relevant to the discussion we're having about new atheism. The only bit where Hagland, uh, I think, more explicitly uh, twists a knife, I guess, against religious believers is in this discussion of the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School um, in 2012 where he points out on page 67 um, that the way that these children were mourned suggested a kind of insufficient mourning, or at least that it would that religious believers are okay to live uh, in this blood, to live with this violence, because effectively these are children um and this is according to barack obama's uh, sermon that he delivered um you know in 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 mourning of the children uh, let the little children come back to me jesus said and do not hinder them um for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven god has called them all home so why um does religious faith really uh, imply caring for those around you when you are actually you know ultimately those kids are going to be okay because they're going home to god um Whereas true secular belief would really mourn them, would really truly feel the loss of them, of these children, and fight to, for example, prevent gun violence in schools or whatever um, the the kind of um, social or political conclusions that you would draw from it would be. So that's one bit where he kind of yeah, yeah twists the knife in. So, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought I mean twists the knife in. I think is a bit unfair because he's dealing with the hard. You know, he's not shying away from a hard case. No, you're right. right? But, but he Brutality. attacks. Sorry, he he attacks the religious believers uh, maybe directly. Head on in yeah. that, yeah, in a very kind of brutal and asking everybody who's reading it to try and put themselves in that position and to say that the only you know the genuine kind of um, response is the secular one. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, his conclusion, I think, is is pretty bracing. He says a secular consolation does not have to redeem death, and it's like. Yeah, this this is a very, I guess you have different sorts of consolation, and this is quite a stark one in a way. Like it's not it's not very forgiving. It's not very um, doesn't have soft edges. But I think it's a really important point that he makes. You know, this is this is the <laughs> you're appreciating that death is final, and 
you have to do that if you take life to have any meaning. So this is, you, you can't sort of, you're, you're devaluing the finitude and life itself if you're if you're willing to kind of take the, it's not even the easy option, but if you're willing to have that kind of religious consolation, you have to disavow that. You have to kind of look things on uh, more directly in the face and say, well, no, don't, this, you don't have to redeem this. You have mm. to kind of live with the the meaning and the value that's been lost here. Um, and that is a hard thing to do. And there are, you know, it doesn't really go into this too much, but that you can see why people might, for various reasons, shy away from that because it's not a, it's quite a big ask to, to yeah. do that, to look that nice. in the face. Nice. No, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that point about redeem, redeeming death because I want to come back to it in a bit. Um, one question I'm interested in, in in our reading of this book, what you guys thought, to what extent does Hagland seem concerned with Abrahamic religions versus Buddhism or versus other forms of Stoicism. So, for example, on page 51, he says, I emphasize the adjective religious rather than the noun religion, since the ideal I am targeting is not limited to institutionalized religion. Uh, it's not uh, related to supernatural God, divine creation, and so on. Um, and Hagland gives, for example, um, Buddhism as, as a case, and it's nirvana, which is about very much about being in the here and now. Um, so to what extent um do you think each of these is the object of Hegland's critique yeah i i mean i think this is a very good question and i have i, I wouldn't say it's a hot take on this but it really got me thinking the question that you do you pose to us and i because th- it's like yeah so my, my conclusion is basically that you know contemporary society or at least western europe is kind of historically culturally christian but it's really buddhist in belief and and practice and mm. you know mindfulness being popular buddhism this is the way that people I think try to access or more popularly get closer to ideas of eternity or or transcendence or kind of escape from finitude. So actually, I think he does. I think he does do do both. Obviously, the chapter on um, Abraham and Isaac that's that's the Abrahamic religions, including one of the the names of one of the characters. But I think it's it is a um, he does take the time, particularly in <clears throat> later in the book, to to kind of. To see what it is that appeals, not what it is that appeals about Buddhism, but how this is an this is an important way to try to escape this idea of finitude. And it did make me think. So this is the, the hot take. It made me think that, like, yeah, this is, Buddhism corresponds to a society that doesn't have any that in which the subject has died, in which it's possible materially to try and see the conditions where you can fly away from from having any agency in the world. Because mm. you know, Christianity. It has it situates you as a moral agent. Buddhism, though, is, is an attempt to to undermine that or attempt to to escape from it. There's a better way to put it. So it did make me pick up the death of subjects explained again by by James Hartfield and, and try and have a look if there are any references to Buddhism in there. And I couldn't find any, um, although I didn't didn't read it cover to cover. But yeah, it just makes it just think it made me think that this is the the critique that you want to deliver now is more one about what Buddhism means than what the Abrahamic religions mean. Right. I was going to say to what George said, I wanted to throw something in, which is I, have to, I was slightly puzzled by this as well. I think Buddhism is a more, you know, in many ways, Buddhism is a better target, as George indicates, for the kind of um, belief system um, that um, that Hagelin wants to attack. So I did wonder about it, you know, and I wonder like um, what the calculation was. You know, so is it like something addressed to American an American audience where the you know kind of weight of American religiosity um, is felt more? Was it something? I mean, he indicates at the beginning of the book like he's very he's very kind of um, oriented around and conscious of his 
um, his historic roots, his family roots. You know, perhaps there's some kind of stern Scandinavian Lutheranism in his family background. Um, or perhaps it would feel kind of artificial to talk about something which is still a cultural import into Europe, even if it can, or into the West at least, which and it's very has this very kind of attenuated and diffuse existence in the form of like, you know, corporate kind of well-being seminars and mindfulness and so on. And so it would feel artificial if he didn't also address the kind of the deep kind of cultural roots of Western Western belief systems. So I mean, I was yeah, I was. Um, I was intrigued as well by the, you know, by the choice. And I suppose um, it, there is also just more to discuss, you know, the way in which he talks about St. Augustine and Rousseau responding to St. Augustine and so on. So it gives you kind of props with which to discuss belief systems. But I tend to agree with George. And I'd also say I think Stoicism as well is the kind of, you know, spontaneous form of what passes for kind of um, lay philosophy. You know, like um, I'm constantly struck by the fact the way in which kind of banal stoic soundbites recur in all of these um, kind of well-being um, uh, tips that are provided on social media, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and people share kind of, you know, Marcus Aurelius quotes and whatnot. And it does. And it's a, a Hegelian insight. You know, it's Hegel's critique of stoicism. And I don't know if Haglin develops it more, but it speaks to condition you know, as Stoicism developed in the Roman Empire, it speaks to a condition in which there is a deadlock. Human freedom hasn't got the avenues to express itself, and therefore that forces you kind of the um, the inward curl, which is what happens mm. with Stoicism, the withdrawal from the world. And I guess, I mean, I presume that's what Hagland is building up to. But I thought, like, you know, the sideswipes of Stoicism are entirely warranted, entirely merited. And the fact that it has such a kind of grip on contemporary consciousness is does speak to a pervasive sense of kind of powerlessness in contemporary culture. Um, nice, and yeah. it's worth attacking. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think he's actually, you know, he's somewhat reductive in, in going, well, look, whether it's, you know, the Abrahamic extended universe that you're into or, um, you know, or, or various forms of Buddhism, mindfulness, whatever, or various kind of lay forms of stoicism, um, ultimately, we're going to resume that all in this term, stoicism. Um, and I, th I don't think they're just sideswipes at it, but I think it's a consistent concern. I want to throw something else. Sorry, in there sorry, Alex. Sorry, just to interrupt. Did you just come up with that term, the uh, Abrahamic extended universe? I'm sure I've read that somewhere. Someone must have said uh, it, but I, but I, I, I kind of liked it. Yeah. Well, uh, I, it does I, sound I, like something like Ned Flanders would say to his kids, like, "Hey, kids, want to go to the movies? Want to watch, you know, Abrahamic extended universe? There's whatever, etc." I think uh, wouldn't that wait, be is though? That, is that Christianity and Islam, or is that Christianity, Islam, Islam, and Judaism? It's no, no. It's a three. No, but no, Judaism is the original one, so the extended universe has to be Christianity and Islam. Right. Yeah. 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 There, yeah there's exactly. definitely sequels or or whatever. It's, I think it is a. I think it probably would would be a. Yeah. It's it's a way to to. Is it a way to value the original more highly? I mean, sometimes the sequels are better, um, but generally not. I mean, in today's sequelitis uh, infested world, the sequels are generally worse. But anyway, that we can leave that to the theologians. I thought you were going to say that we can leave that to the listeners. Like, let us know which one's the best religion. Let's not yeah. do that. Um, which one is your favorite? Uh, no, but to, to return to the question of, of uh, Western Buddhism, I mean, one of the most consistent and brilliant, in my view, uh, crit 
criticisms and critics of, of Western Buddhism has been Slavoj Žižek um, over the past, you know, over the end of history period, effectively. And I just pulled out a quote from, I mean, one of the many things he's written on Western Buddhism. This is specifically from an article called From Western Marxism to Western Buddhism, the Taoist Ethic and the Spirit of Global Capitalism from 2011. But it's a point that's been repeated over a number of books, um, as Žižek is wont to do. Although Western Buddhism presents itself as the remedy against the stressful tension of capitalist dynamics, allowing us to uncouple and retain inner peace and gelassenheit, or equanimity, it actually functions as its perfect ideological supplement. The recourse to Taoism or Buddhism offers a way out of this predicament that, pre that definitely works better than the desperate escape into old traditions. Instead of trying to cope with the accelerating rhythm of technological progress and social changes, one should rather renounce that very endeavor the endeavor to retain control over what goes on, rejecting it as the expression of the modern logic of domination. Western Buddhism would just be a way for us to fully participate in capitalist dynamics while retaining the appearance of sanity, of mental sanity. Um, so this all in, in Zizek's you know, line of criticism here looks kind of similar to Haglund's critique of this desire to let go of detachment rather than attachment and kind of seizing the possibilities, um, you know, seizing subjectivity, the possibilities of freedom and so on um, in, in name of this retreat. And basically, you know, Zizek's argument goes that this retreat is basically impossible in global, global capitalism. So um, Western Buddhism is impossible effectively um you know it's something that belongs to um you know very much a pre-industrial pre-modern uh, ancient even past but um but that it so what its function is is an ideological supplement you can go on with global capitalism while kind of withdrawing from uh, the difficulties and the commotion and all the rest that it that it throws at you now um, you retain your inner peace you I retain mean, your inner peace exactly well and so it's, it's not it's not exactly that right the line is you retain the um appearance of mental sanity i right. think that's such a great line allow to fully participate in capitalist dynamics while retaining the appearance of mental sanity that is that is a i, I hadn't come across this article before but that's that's exactly what it does right that it's you're you're able to 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 you know appear like because you're you're uh you're taking time to reflect and, and calm down that you're you're in control and that you're sane but actually the dynamics are completely um in control of you yeah. Now, um, but what's interesting in putting that up against Haglund is that it seems similar, right? Haglund's against detachment. He makes this argument consistently against uh, what he what he puts into the package of stoicism. Um, but at the same time, Haglund also argues that we should accept our vulnerability, our lack of control, that we are finite beings, that we that things will come apart, we will lose them, um, that we cannot have total control. Um, so uh, how do you read that? Is, is Haglund in contradiction to, for example, Zizek's argument? So I think the the point about vulnerability um, is an important one because it is in one sense the, the core of his, his argument that the you know secular faith requires a, a, a risk to be taken and an attachment to something which is um, which is uh, fragile and this puts therefore at the core of like moral personhood some sort of vulnerability vulnerability to to loss and to to that attachment being detached and being being broken um and i think that's but it's not the same sort of vulnerability as you might have more pervasively in in you know that i think we've talked about a lot on this podcast and pete ramsey has a great set of essays on this on on the northern star which we should definitely link to 
but I think so my distinction would be that the um the kind of more general approach that we have of of kind of grounding political claims in in weakness or in vulnerability is based on a vulnerated um subject, not a vulnerable one, i.e. somebody who's already been injured, has experienced trauma, and that is what the claim to recognition or to political resources is. Whereas Hagland is trying, I think, more than vulnerability to base everything on on risk. You have to like, in order to live a life and to make meaningful choices, you have to take a risk. And you know, risk means it you could it could blow up in your face. But if you don't Oh, I've just thought of a, a good, um, that's not actually my analogy, but a good analogy here. There's, um, so Sylvia Plath, I think it is, has this story somewhere, I can't remember where, of like the the plum tree, sitting in a plum tree and all the plums are ripening and each plum represents a kind of a life that she could live. And she's sitting there and all the plums are ripening and one is like being a writer, the other is being kind of having a family, you know, moving abroad, whatever. And she decide she can't make up her mind and so all the plums listeners will actually know if i've got the fruit right and the author or, and the meaning but um, if, if they've heard of this before. <laughs> jesus christ but the, the idea is that if you don't take the risk all of these plums which represent these different lives are just like going to rot on the tree and then they're going to fall to the ground so if you don't take a risk then you don't enact any choice of meaning and so you're not you're not living freely so that was yeah. a really, that was a no, much no, longer answer. I, I think that's fair. I don't know about, I mean, I don't know the Sylvia Plath reference, but I, it, I mean, what you're saying works, George. I would, um, I think, you know, I'd go, I mean, I think it's also a good point. I think his, so the way he's not just, Hagland isn't just wagering that our kind of collective vulnerability. It's not exactly vulnerability though. It's um, death right? I mean, finitude, which makes us vulnerable, but it's not vulnerability in the sense of kind of permanent um, damage or trauma. It's the the fact of having to confront the reality of limits and the reality of death. And I think it, it's also framed in a different way. It's an appeal to humanity collectively, um, as opposed to the way in which um, the vulnerable subject kind of the claims of vul- the vulnerable subject are framed essentially as a pitch to state power. So I need protection or I need support or I need, you know, extra legislation or I need, you know, um, the police to kind of be trained to protect me in particular ways, which they don't currently do, or I need, you know, the United Nations and NATO to intervene to protect me. So that, that claim, the vulnerable subject is always kind of claim on an existing um, an existing kind of structure of power, I think. Whereas Hagland is more being cast philosophically, it's more open-endedly framed um, to the reader and implicitly to, you know, humanity as, um, you know, that we're all, I mean, to ma- I mean, not wishing to make it sound tried, but that we're all in it together, right? And so we're all kind of limited by death and have to draw conclusions from that. So I think it's, you know, it's a good point. Yeah, I mean, he does try to limit the sense of, you know, the idea of, of total control, I mean, which I think is completely, you know, psychoanalytically well grounded, the attempt to control to control is, uh, it is pathological. Yeah, um, it's holding on to your poop. Don't hold on to your poop, kids. Let it go. Um, and <laughs> I'm not you, could t- you could have told me that a little while ago. I've been doing it all wrong. Jeez. Um, the, uh, I, but I think he 
Haglund is aware of another pitfall, right? Or another kind of escape, another escape from commitment. Because there's the escape from commitment, which we've been discussing, which is the stoic one. Um, and there's another one, which is the one that Nietzsche hints at. And so there's this crucial passage on page 80, uh, 48, as well as a, a very important footnote linked in, um, linked in there, which I would encourage you to read if you haven't. If you skip the footnotes, that's totally understandable. But um, page 48, footnote 14, it's really good. <laughs> um, it's a deep cut. Um, basically, uh, Nietzsche's death of God prompts a revaluation of finite temporal life. So far, so good. But according to Haglund, Nietzsche is also tempted by the other extreme. So despite Nietzsche being a, a critic of Stoicism, there's also this temptation to embrace fate, to love suffering and death, So uh, a feeling so strong that one wants nothing to be different. So that's weird. That's weird. So that's one way of dealing with uh, of with the, you know, <clears throat> passionate yeah, attachments not, that life throws at you. That that you yeah. might um, that you might it's just go weird. well. You let. I mean, it's not weird. It's not weird exactly, but I mean, I think it. You know, this kind of existent. It's a romantic existential masochism in a way. Um, yeah. This determination to kind of you know confront. Um, even though you know you can't transcend it or overcome it, but to kind of confront it and to, if not master it, at least kind of constantly grapple with it. And I mean, I suppose this is my my concern is that Hagland underestimates the fact that if you accept his premises, then these other doors open up as well. Yeah. And I'm not sure that he's, um, you know, he understands that they are also kind of appealing in their own ways. Um, and that I'm not sure, at least this far in the book, that he's made sufficient effort to, you know, to um, shut down their appeal. Um, yeah, and good point. I'd also, and also say, I think, you know, there is like, um, it's not, I mean, it's not just vulnerability. And that is, um, as a statement of humanism, I suppose, you know, there's still the, there's the famous soliloquy from Hamlet, where Hamlet kind of... Um, or Shakespeare talking through Hamlet kind of oscillates between talking about how man is kind of, you know, crude and insignificant in one breath and in the next breath, how kind of close to an angel, how tremendously creative and potent, how astonishing an accomplishment and so on. Listeners, if I mean, if you're not familiar with it, you know, it's easily found through Google. But the point being that there is, you know, that kind of um, that recognition of tremendous creative potential Um hasn't really, you know, isn't really, um, doesn't get a look in yet, at least in mm -hmm. Ireland. And I don't know if it does later, but it seems to me again, like it's hard to disavow. So you don't want the kind of the crude Prometheanism, which is kind of reminiscent of, you know, like, um, a kind of Stalinist or Stakhanovite yeah. socialist realism of the 1930s of, um, humanity kind of mastering all before it by simply placing faith in, you know, in uh, Uncle Joe, that kind of approach, that kind of Prometheanism, I think is, um, you know, obviously unwarranted, but at the same time, simply kind of um, huddling together in face of death, which sometimes, you know, I know this is not what Hagland is seeking to do, but sometimes it seems to me that's what he's, and, you know, that's the position he ends up in despite himself. That also doesn't seem to me to be necessarily the answer. But perhaps I mean, I'm running it, ahead of it. But no, I mean, it's an interesting thing to point out, actually. You're right, that up to this stage in the book, there isn't a sense of the creative being. Um, hints at it, but it's mainly the caring being, right? It's it's a person who's engaged 
with their family. And the family comes through very strongly. It's in the tale of Isaac. It's in the, his reading of Knausgaard. Uh, it's in uh, Augustine and erotic love. It's all, it's, you know, it's about the people that you love in your life, whether romantic um, or, or familial love. Um, and that's fine. But yeah, it's interesting. It's not a creative being. It's what about your being. podcasting lovers? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I don't want you guys to go away. You know, stay, stay here. <laughs> Um, we don't we don't want to be sacrificed um, either so but, yeah but I mean if I have to do it that. you know I, I think for the sake of uh, historical progress <laughs> I, say, I would ha- I would sacrifice you and I would believe I that you would be redeemed progress <laughs> I do it for the pod and you would be redeemed um, if you if you invite us on a hiking a three-day hiking trip up a mountain I am we'll I'm likely to do that yeah <laughs> if, you, if you've got a knife and some that would be very on brand for me yeah Um, I just want to quote from this um, footnote that I mentioned because I think it's very good and we're not going to discuss it, but just to foreshadow a discussion that we will be having in, in the next couple of months, that various forms of Stoicism continue to enjoy the status of supposed spiritual wisdom in our own historical epoch, in everything from advanced philosophy to self-help books, should remind us how far we are from having achieved an emancipated society. So again, this is a point that I mean Phil has already kind of... Um, sketched out as well, that somehow the appeal of stoicism uh, recurs in moments of, I guess, historical fatalism and and sense of um, sense of closure and our inability to seize the capacities for our own freedom. Um, so anyway, something that I think foreshadowed very well, I actually tweeted out that footnote because I thought it was so good and Heiglid was like, shit, I, I thought of put th- putting that in the conclusion, I just left it on a footnote. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so anyway, it's an important one uh, worth reading because um, I think it, it sums up his the argument of the whole book actually possibly um quite neatly it's also i wonder i mean not to put too fine a point in it but i wonder if it's also very specific to the end of the end of history um because you know stoicism is also there's a strong overlap with cosmopolitanism kind of the co- cosmopolitanism of the ancients and the later roman empire um and it, you know at least according in the hegelian reading which is what i'm assuming Hagland is borrowing from or drawing on it's the um the fact that you have certain limited rights in the kind of world empire, but that you're blocked by the bureaucratic imperial state. You don't have, so you have certain rights as a citizen that, um, which you can enjoy, you know, a certain kind of life if you're a Roman citizen and not a slave, but that you're, you know, the kind of the crushing weight of imperial despotism limits the way in which human freedom can be expressed. And so you get this kind of global political structure which is controlled by an overbearing kind of centralized despotism. And you kind of try and shelter within that and you withdraw internally. You know, you kind of avoid the overcommitment that risks self-destruction and the, um, you know, the undoing of everything that you care about. So I wonder if there is, you know, a deeper, it's not just kind of um, capitalism per se, but also, you know, a deeper kind of pervasive, um, political powerlessness so that it belongs also to an era that is um not kind of an imp- not the roman imperial um globalism or cosmopolitanism but a late you know kind of late capitalist american version the end of the 20th century early 21st century mm. that's a really interesting point but is it actually right because 
isn't it the i don't know i suggested it that there is more maybe you know there is a political there's a political complementarity it's not just about kind of the economic side of things no but i mean because when you started talking i was like yeah you you you, i was convinced but then the longer you were talking the less convinced i I was (laughs) because i start i started thinking that actually are we are we really stoic in the sense of like with relation to empire or international relations isn't it more interventionist and kind of a saviorist complex that western nations have to kind of you know responsibility to protect and humanitarian intervention all this sort of thing i mean this is taking us quite a way off we've we've gone from the main text of footnote to points raised by the footnotes this is a super deep cut but it just yeah um I thought I would uh, get your take on that, given given your. Um, yeah, it's an. In, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a consistent kind of a consistent account of our existing politics. It's only to say that Stoicism and cosmop there is kind of an overlap between Stoicism and cosmopolitanism, hmm. um, and that you see that in the kind of Roman, you know, that's connected to the Roman period, and perhaps it's connected to our period now. And there is the effort to relieve human suffering in the human form of humanitarianism, um, but not to address it. I mean, that's well, the and, other, and, the there, and there's also it. no commitment, right? Mm. You can go and bomb a country, yeah. but it's kind of at arm's length. There's no engagement with dealing with the pain that you cause or whatever, right? Yeah, or um, indeed transforming, you know, systemic transformation of the causes is really, you know, is ultimately left unaddressed. So you kind you address, you kind of relieve extreme human suffering, but the idea of um, engaging in risky and dangerous political transformation, um, you know, that falls by the wayside. So there might be, you know, there might be more to it anyway. Mm. I mean, it's... Well, let's, it's let, we'll put a pin it's in a this and, and we'll, and we'll um, maybe come back to it um, in the final episode on this because we're going to draw out some of the, um, you know, the kind of political themes and also kind of, conclusions that we might draw from the book so uh one to uh come back to in a couple of months time so um turning to another aspect of um i guess personhood or subjectivity that uh, hagland addresses and one is the question of coherence hagland stresses that we what we must strive for for in our lives is not completion our life is never complete it's never over you never put a bow on it at the end of it but rather um you want your life to be coherent and that coherent um, is a life endowed with a purpose or a telos uh, he says you know if you're a sociologist you commit to being a sociologist and being the best damn sociologist you can be um, and that is your life or whether you decide to whether you're a father or um, you know a, a, a watchmaker or whatever you might be um, that that demands commitment and a certain coherence over the course of your life my um, trouble with this is not any kind of objection to to that proposal as such, but I wor- wonder and I worry whether Hagland isn't um, demanding precisely what we're lacking um, in our alienated society. Isn't doesn't Hagland risk demanding that we do precisely what his critique says? Um, is lacking. So let me just give an example. Um, From page 58, he says, the form of living on, which means a commitment to um, extending life and making life better, um, a commitment to this worldly life, the form of living on makes it possible to bind the past to the future, to make our lives last and hold together beyond the moment. But the time of our lives, and this is me saying this, um, the time of our lives is actually so fragmented into shards in the postmodern world. It's often too unstable to actually provide coherence to a life and often too accelerated as well to even be able to reflect our own own lives, um, a process which might then discover or impose some coherence in our lives. So 
to achieving coherence in you know uh, the postmodern times or whatever you want to call it, um, achieving coherence is very difficult. And isn't Hagelin just going, well, yes, the problem is we have a lack of coherence. So what you need is to have coherence. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that I would read it in exactly the same way in terms of it all being about coherence and the necessity of having a kind of a singular project or a, a, a telos um, to make to give life meaning. I think, isn't it more about the the necessity to to make these 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 choices and i mean things that we've already talked about in terms of the the finitude of of all of the things that you can attach yourself to um you have to choose between them you you are um necessarily making a choice of of some and not others and so that's that's where you where you give the meaning i don't i don't know if i would interpret what he was saying as that you necessarily need to have a, a singular overarching project in in your whole life to give it that meaning no, isn't it no, more that no. you're you're having to choose between you know you have a finite number of options you have a finite time you know this is it's that that it's not like scarcity gives it meaning but it's like it, on the other side of the coin it's like eternity is is undesirable this is an argument that he makes and i think it makes it very like in, a, in an interesting way and differently to some other critiques of eternal life that you get from philosophers like Bernard Williams, who says that eternal life's boring, or um, Martha Nossbaum, who who's like, yeah, it would be really alienating because if you're, it you just wouldn't be human at all. You'd be like uh, Doctor Manhattan in the um, in Watchmen. You'd be like completely detached and alienated. Has Martha so, Nossbaum really read Watchmen? No, sorry, I, I she says it's alienating. I bought in the Watchmen, um, right. uh, and actually she, maybe she's read the graphic novel. She, had, she may Probably or may not, not have seen the film, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 that's not how I sort of read it. That coherence was the the thing that you're sort of striving for, but I might have sort of missed that aspect. A I bit. tend to agree. I tend to agree with George. I think he's, you know, uh, that said, he does, you know, it's I, I does he doesn't seem to really address alienation, at least thus far. So, in the sense of the basic. Um, powerlessness which isn't just a psychological or subjective state but actually you know a structural condition of um of life in a society in which the control over the means of production is um monopolized or restricted then inevitably you end up in a particular position where you know that lack of control will constantly thwart any effort to impose meaning and direction on your life because you're dependent so constantly dependent on others in one form or another so let me let me just flesh out this point about coherence actually with reference to to the text because it comes through possibly most strongly in his discussion of Knausgaard um, and Knausgaard's secular confession uh, he, he um, points out that you know to, to own your life is not to own what you love because it's not your possession, but to own that you love what you love. And you should focus the gaze. And this is a phrase he takes from Knausgaard. It's a, it's a repeated phrase in, in Knausgaard's My Struggle. Focus the gaze by attaching yourself to what you see. And I think um, the idea of coherence comes out in that discussion because Knausgaard throughout the book sometimes, uh, this is Hagelin's reading of it. I haven't read uh, Knausgaard's My Struggle myself. Um, but that... 
you that Knausgaard maybe loses himself at certain points and forgets what his life is about. And then in the process of detailing, recounting his life, in the process of living it, he reconstructs it and gives it a sense of coherence, a, a, an integrity, a sense of what his self is, and that it's bound together with those that he loves. And it's and those that he loves, he sees because it's, you know, focus the gaze by attaching yourself to those that are around you. And so that's where the, I think the coherence comes through. Um, to, to kind of re remake my point in, in different terms, um, yeah, isn't he not, does he not take alienation seriously enough? Because the point is precisely that many people perhaps lack that, even lack those networks. Um, and to extend the point into, into a different terrain, but again, I think to, to still deal with this question of alienation, I'm going to bring in the questions of trust and faith, not just coherence. So um, trust and faith are very important. Giving yourself over to someone um, is a message that comes through very clearly. Uh, but one of the facets of alienation today is precisely a severe loss of trust as we withdraw into the private sphere and withdraw even from each other. Um, I think, for example, one can look at the the um, fact that so many demands are made today that all relationships be contractual based on kind of, kind of contractual form of consent is evidence of this lack of trust. Um, so again, is Hagelin not serious enough about the alienation that is faced and just simply exhorting us to trust, exhorting us to impose coherence in a life that um, lacks coherence and is very difficult to actually find? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, I think what is it's not that so much an exhortation in the sense of an existential kind of stake or wager as much as um, asking somebody or inviting the reader to look at their own life and to look at their kind of existing, the structure of their existing relationships and how much they, you know, um, how much weight they put on them and how much weight they should put on them. So I think it's, a sl you know, it's slightly different, but it doesn't get around the problem that you've outlined, Alex, you know, that um, and whether or not kind of the his idea of this constant kind of fidelity and struggle to maintain um, to maintain ourselves and our relations in the con in the context of finitude is simply, you know, is simply kind of patching up a society that's constant, that is by its very kind of nature, constantly um, unstable and in flux and therefore uh, tearing, you know, kind of tearing at us or tearing, undermining that effort. And it's a, you know, it's a genuine, um, I mean, again, we can't preempt too much because he's cl clearly, he said himself at the beginning, he's clearing the path to make a case for a particular vision of democratic mm. socialism that's rooted in this kind of philosophical sketch of freedom and finitude that he's setting up. So we can't preempt it too much. But there are a few things that kind of, I suppose, um, seem to me that they, um, you know, that they, they can't be right, at least. Um, and so, and that I guess, um, I guess that leaves me wondering about whether or not he'll manage to pull the rabbit out, out of the hat by the end of the book. Hmm. And I'm thinking specifically his claim, like that it's wrong to see the end of politics as something worthwhile. Um, so you know, yeah. So uh, okay. the, yeah, the traditional Marxist idea that you come that politics comes to an end and that is the worthwhile kind of pursuit the ultimate pursuit of the withering away of the state and so on um he seems to discount that and to suggest that that would be um you know that would be uh there is no there is no moment of consummation or completion there will you know we'd always be stuck with these kinds of given our finitude we'll always be stuck with um efforts to um efforts to continually maintain that and i think his 
I think that's to mistake. You know, he's conflating different things there, and that the Marxist claim obviously isn't a um, isn't one of um, isn't one of religious redemption, but it does necessarily wager on a um, over you know a certain kind of transcendence of human history. And it seems you know if it's consistent with Marx's idea, then it has to do that. It seems to me, and so yeah. I think he's perhaps he is kind of a bit too. Um, stuck in the quagmire so i mean just to return to this point about alienation i think you you know you have the kind of um the structural or political or social like understanding which you know come to in later chapters of the book but i think he does he does address this directly when he discusses knausgaard this like he says that the the whole and i I haven't read it either um but this book did make me want to which i think is an achievement in in and of itself in a way all of my struggle can be seen as an attempt to answer the question he asks here what what has engraved itself in my face so he's might say this is kind of a strange way to address this question of alienation but i think what he's trying to do is through knausgaard is to address the alienation that you could that you can feel essentially in experiencing your own life in a detached way. So you can be alienated from the experience of your own life. And I think he he says you need a bifocal approach. You need to understand the existential and the physical in all of it and says that this is what Knausgaard does by essentially paying attention to all of the minutiae of your life that you might abstract away from. And I think it comes across as, as he definitely builds up Knausgaard as this kind of incredible like secular confession because it rejects the alienation of the religious confession in a sense it instead of trying to say trying to escape from the you know the simultaneously physical and existential that's embodied in the time that you spend with your family the time that you spend looking in the mirror or doing writing or whatever it is um so i think he does he takes a bit of a different approach to it than might be more commonly found in the marxist tradition but I think it's quite effective or it's definitely made me think that there is, you know, you need, you, you want to be, you want to um, focus your gaze or your attention on what's in front of you rather than trying to live in a detached and kind of alienated way in that sense. I mean, it's obviously it doesn't solve everything because it's an individual philosophical orientation, not a project of political change, but I think it is something which he does, he does kind of address directly. So I mean, I have a question, um, you know, very much on the point of what you have just said, George and Phil, as well. Um, I don't want to maybe, you know, go into too much depth on the question precisely because it might be answered in later chapters, and we don't want to, um, you know, if listeners haven't read that far, we don't want to get to that um, already. But um, I think there's a poten- potentially a, a tension between this question of personal finitude and a history, an infinite history, perhaps, um, or a history that might come to an end but um you know the good end of history the good communist end of history not the bad fukuyama end of history um basically um so you know um i i wonder whether there's a tension between this idea of personal finitude and history um for example if i liked it because george you mentioned this question of uh, redeeming death earlier secular faith doesn't have to redeem death um but actually so much history making or attempts to make history um by human beings have been attempts to redeem death that um, in, you know, striving to create a new society, we don't, aren't just um, trying to build the new out of out of what we have today or, out of, or indeed out of nothing, but try to redeem all those lost um, through previous struggle or through um, the heaps of disaster that, uh, you know, the, the, the piles of wreckage upon wreckage that that progress 
throws that progress throws out. Um, so I wonder whether, you know, in throwing out the religious baby, do you not, or throwing out the religious bathwater, do, do you not also lose the baby? Because um, a lot of um, radical movements have been inspired by religious faith, which precisely seek to redeem death, that it has been a powerful motive factor in in human history and does that not get lost do we not end up sorry let me just finish the question but do we not just end up with um something that is you know just the banal um finitude of our lives and our families and whatever versus some grand romantic historical tale that might seek redemption for the dead but we do i think i mean so this is the point i guess is we don't you can't redeem death at least not in a way that is um meaning you know and be human so i mean in a way that's kind of meaningful or consistent with you know a a meaningful understanding of humanity but there is at least in the kind of the classical understanding of marxist emancipation and this is what he claims to be staking on i mean he explicitly says this you know we haven't he hasn't laid out we haven't got to his how he lays out his particular vision of democratic socialism yet but it does seem to me that it is you know can to be consistent like you say alex it does wager on an end of history um which is to say a redemption of the ten thousand years of human history or so since the agricultural revolution the developments of organized religion of states of class division and of a division of labor it is seeking to redeem that and you know in and the meaning of revolution is um a complete full circle right so in that sense it's seeking to restore the human community, if you want to put it that way, that is lost with the onset of the agricultural revolution. Um, mm. So I think there is, you know, there is a redem- there is a redemption, a redemptive moment in there that is lost in, I was about to say, in Knausgaard's vision, but in Haglund's, in Haglund's vision. Is redeem the right word? I mean, this is this is a this is. I don't think that is correct. Is it that you? That everything is retrospectively made good by something that happens later, isn't it? More that the motive not made good, but drive... made meaningful. Mm, but that's, I don't know. I think I still think human history would be meaningful even if we never were to have communism. I think that's that's right. It's the well, forces. It's a question, right? Well, I mean, yeah, but I you could I be a Hege- I mean, but you don't have to be a communist. You could be a Hegelian, right, in the classical mold, and you could still see history as kind of an unfolding process of of um, of freedom. But I mean, you do. There does seem to me to be like, if you wish to, you know, that a claim for redemption is to say that these things in the past have meaning. You know, like all of these various, or they're meaningless. So, and if you think they have some kind of meaning, um, all these, you know, ancient struggles, slaveries, republics, empires, rise and fall of empires and states and what have you, that if it does have meaning, then what meaning does it have? And it seems to me that if you think it has meaning, then it is open to, it's open to the possibility of being redeemed. Hmm. So um, I'm sure this will be will be something we will come back to. So um, we're going to leave this here, but I just want to throw this out there as um, some food for thought, um, maybe for the next one. Um, but you know, um, Hagelin talks about this idea of living on, um, but there's a particular perverse interpretation of that today, which is the secular cult of health and life extension at all costs, um, effectively, you know, the Californian ideology. Um, and there is another um, com- completely radical alternative, which certainly is a religious one it doesn't conform to 
um, Hagland secular vision, but it's a deferral to eternal life, something which uh, will make us blind to the suffering in the here and now because we will be redeemed in the future. Effectively, uh, Christian evangelicals or um, Islamic fundamentalists, for example. Um, and and that that um, maybe those are the choices, the terrible choices which face us today in answering these questions. Uh, is it California or is it Nigeria? Nigeria, I'm just taking that as a sort of metonym for both uh, the growth of Christian evangelicals as well as uh, um, radical fundamentalist Islam, for example, Boko Haram or whatever. So the question is, 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 our, is our future either California or, or Nigeria and is that terrible? Anyway, moving on. Um, you could make the case both are failed states. So if that's true, then <laughs> our choices truly are terrible. And um, you could also say that California is the pinnacle of of kind of Western Buddhism as well, the mindfulness and. Well, that was my so point. Forth. That was my point. That the, I think that the Californian is the Buddhism as well as an infinite life extension, you know, or or the secular cult of health. Good. I, I, it's tempting to answer the question, but you because you said I'm just going to throw it out there, so I will. I will. But we, my we're going to come so back. There'll, there'll be later. material. Yeah, there'll be material to discuss more of that in the future. So, um, I guess two final kind of blocks of of ideas to deal with. Firstly, um, Haglin takes aim at what he calls political theology, the argument that secular life has a normative and existential deficit that without religion we lack the common basis for morality that might bind society. And also that we lack the basis for redemptive hope that is needed to find meaning in our lives. Um, in chapter one, Hagelin presents a reading of Charles Taylor um, and his discussions of the development of secularism. And he calls, uh, he calls it the, the existential value of religious faith, uh, the main line of defense for religion today. Do we think that's correct? And I, I would even throw, extend that further and say it's the last line of defense for religious faith. That um, this political theology that well we almost you don't need to believe in it but it still works even if you don't. It's a really interesting question and I've not read Taylor's *A Secular Age* but again as with um, Knausgaard it makes me think I you know I should bump it up the kind of um, the reading list. But I mean so in the quote that he takes from Taylor he points to a real thing the you know the um, the feeling of the particularly in moments such as death, the feeling that a lack of religion is insufficient to the moment. And I mean, I've not been um, fortunate or unfortunate, uh, however you want to put it, um, to be, have been to a secular funeral. Um, but I mean, I, you know, from hearing people talk about it and from reading about it in the Hagland, um, you know, I do, I do understand what they mean. And I do, you know, I've also had kind of um, secular friends and colleagues who have fallen back on, on religious rights um, in their own families, um, because it's uh, it seems to be the only appropriate kind of mode. Um, so I don't, you know, I think so. Hagland responds to this kind of sting of Taylor's by saying that, well, we don't know, you know, there is um, we haven't built up a culture of um, secular grieving, and that seems to me like a weak response, to be honest, because it seems to me like to underestimate the alienation that forces us to kind of coil back to consistently coil back to religion and to fall back on the need for meaning in our lives that is um, kind of outside of society, given that society is not something we control as you know given that uh, accepting that as a kind of predicate of modern capitalism mm. so i think his his defense is insufficient on this claim that you've put in alex that you know is it the last line of defense the existential value of religious faith 
it's probably too much to hope for because I'm sure in the 19th century, there were lots of secularists who thought like, you know, if you just kind of get the church out of education and demolish religious faith by talking about Darwin and, you know, kind of um, extending the miracles of modern science, that it will uh, gradually kind of wither away. And, you know, that hasn't been the case, obviously. So I think it's probably, um, you know, I'm sure I think right. and that you probably... Get... You get what um, well, Cap- Adorno. You get what Adorno called universal astrology, basically. Yeah, well, that capitalism. You know, the nature of if Marx's, you know, if Marx's anal- if the classical kind of Marxist analysis is right, then capitalism and alienation will produce, recreate the need for religious faith. So it will have many lines of defense as long as um, as long as capitalism exists. Mm. Yeah, True. I mean, it's, you know, the oldies are the goodies. Religion is the heart of a heartless world. And we, and while you still have a heartless world, you're still going to have the the impulse, the appeal of um, a religious conception of the good life. And I think that includes, a, you know, good death and funerals as well. And so I think, you know, it ultimate, it's a kind of a basic point, but I think it's not the last line of defense. It's a, it's a symptom. And whilst you still have a heartless world, i.e. one that we don't, we don't collectively control you you will still have this um this kind of appeal of um religious rights and and a religious approach i mean i think it yeah it did also make me want to read the taylor i mean this maybe is the sign of a good um of a good book that mm-hmm. the things which are discussed in it you're like oh yeah that's got some interesting ideas i want to read that but the you know the the taylor book is like 900 pages and the canal card is like six volumes so you've got to be careful if you read a book that makes you want to read those other books because it's yeah. going to take you a little while and, and you know you need commitment and uh so you know you better commit to something yeah. because it's very demanding isn't it it's a demanding uh reading list let alone a demanding morality right um so to take this on to more social and even sociological terrain for the last couple of questions um and it ties very closely to this question of political theology um at the beginning and this is um in the introduction, um, he takes aim at Faber and actually doesn't, I think it's a point that doesn't really recur throughout the book, but, um, you know, effectively saying that, um, you know, Faber's tragic vision is one in which, um, because we have lost religion, um, we are completely disenchanted and he says he's no real trap and no real escape from that. Um, but I guess I'm putting this question to us, is Weber not right about the state of disenchantment in modernity and the responsibility secular, secularism plays in that? Isn't Hagman too glib in dismissing it, basically saying, hey, let's just have secular faith instead? Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, I get a feeling he kind of, he attacks Weber the way in a way that's analogous to Richard Dawkins attacking religion. He treats it as if, you know, Weber's characterization is kind of an intellectual fallacy rather than a misdiagnosis mm. of a genuine thing, a real thing, you know, when he talks about it. I mean, I think the Weber, you know, the Weber sees it as um, as a necessary component of modern rationalization and the structure of modern society um, in contrast to the Marxist account, which sees it as, you know, rooted in particular social arrangements rather than a condition of modernity itself. Um, but anyway, I mean, you know, irrespective of that, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right where you suggested, Alex. I think he um, he kind of rushes into the attack and um, underestimates, I think, the strength of the Weberian um, mm. so, insight I mean, we, and claim. 
Yeah, we've been circling around some interesting questions here. You know, is whether secular faith is too demanding, whether it will provide that, um, you know, re-enchantment that's necessary. How does that dialogue with the existing state of alienation and um, how do you move forward? Hopefully these questions, some of them at least, will be resolved as we go through the book, um, whether whether by the book itself I mean, or, or, be... or in our discussion. But. Well, he seems to be pushing to politics, right? I mean, he's saying yeah. very explicitly at the beginning of the book that it's linked to his democratic socialism. So, I mean, it seems as if secular faith, you know, that it has to be, its resolution has to be through um, the conditions of our collective life, which is to say, you know, politics. Um, and maybe that is, you know, that is demanding, I guess. It is a demanding thing, right? I mean, yeah. um, you know, looking, taking care of your family and all the stuff that he's kind of, that Cagland is implicitly demanding that you do at the same time as also kind of trying to um, be political. That's no small ask, and particularly given how stupid and retarded politics is at the moment. <laughs> So time for some time for some game theory. I remember um, reading something which said, from a game theory perspective, that the most the, the religions that are growing the most are the most demanding ones. Why? Because people actually want want demanding morality mm. and want things which they have to commit to. And it, yeah, I mean, mindfulness and Buddhism is getting a bit of a beating in this um, um, in this episode, but that's fine so because the, they they the won't, they won't the fight Mormons. back. Yeah, so the future is like a four-cornered fight between Islamists, Pentecostals, um, Mormons, and Haglandites. Is that it? Well, just the, you know, demanding this is not necessarily in the current marketplace a bad thing. Like, people yeah. don't want an easy time, maybe, with um, kind of Western Buddhism. They want something which requires you to um, pay attention and live your life when you're, you know, your kids are getting on your nerves. You're like, no, I'm going to stare things right in the face and I'm going to live in the, you know, the moment and I'm going to appreciate this. And you, oh my God, you've got well, to do I mean, that your whole Western, life. Western Buddhism, Western Buddhism is basically past its sell by date at the end of the end of history. I mean, the, the yeah, sad thing, but that may be true, but then what comes along next is, you know, yeah, evangelical Christianity, which, um, you know, to, is a religion of the poor and uh, primarily, and it provides a motivation for self-discipline, um, but in the hope of uh, redemption in the afterlife, right? So it's not like a staring I, this in the better, face and, and... Is it better to be arguing with an evangelical, you know, with a Pentecostalist, uh, or is it better to be arguing with a kind of Californian Western Buddhist? Ugh. Uh, I have to say, I'd be tempted. I'd be tempted to say the evangelical. You know, I mean, it's a hard thing, but I think probably if I had to have that choice, I think I'd probably go for the evangelical over the Buddhist. I, I suspect that reflects more just having spent more time with one rather than the other. That the other starts to maybe, seem more appealing. Maybe. Anyway, I know. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I know. I know a lot of evangelicals from growing up in the Middle East. Oddly, and this answers some of the listeners who were interested about my background. Um, I'm going to keep the hashtag man of mystery, but I mean, there were lots of bizarrely, there were lots of Christian evangelicals in, um, in the international, among international expatriates in the Middle East. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I know them as well as knowing the kind of dappy Californian Buddhist types as well. And often they're both, you know, this is important too. They're, um, like life coaches are, are the fusion of, of the two things. So, you know, yeah. you get both, you can get you'll, find lots of, you'll find lots of Christians who will talk about mindfulness as well. Yeah, I wonder how they, these uh, we would be characterized by by these two groups and where they would put us in their their ranking of who they would like to argue with. Probably right at the <laughs> bottom because they'd be like these guys. They're so like incredible argument guys. We we don't want to argue with them, um, but maybe they wouldn't mm. do that. 
Uh, we'll let we'll let the listener decide whether we are indeed incredible argument guys. Um, so, I mean, just to kind of conclude that little section, um, I just want to make reference to the fact that in his reading of Knausgaard and Augustine, uh, Haglund says that Augustine's mystical ecstasies are soulless and banal since they seek to leave the world behind. Saint Augustine, Jesus Christ, Alex, it's not Augustine, Saint Augustine. Okay. No, well, I mean, but, you know, in shorthand, Augustine. Anyway. His um, name is St. Augustine. St. A. Yes. Um, But anyway, so that, I think, um, is very blunt from Martin Hagland, and he may indeed be right, but how to re-enchant the world through the secular faith, that's a question which um, we'll deal with in the next episodes. To finish off, one um, final uh, point which comes, I think, at the very end of chapter two, which is a reference to Hitler's struggle, Mein Kampf, um, which is something that Knausgaard deliberately plays with, uh, with the title of his own book, um, which is also My Struggle, Mein Kampf, um, or whatever whatever it is in Norwegian, which I've just forgotten. Um, this is obviously deliberate, um, and Hagland points out in discussing this that Hitler's own example points us to a problem rather different from the stoic escape from earthly commitments that we've been discussing up till now. Instead, the the Hitlerian answer to um, the difficulties of ambivalence and the um, problems or the the demands, basically, that secular faith imposes on us is an externalization. It's an externalization of all the uncertainties and risks and ambivalences of life onto an external they who are cast as weak, um, therefore casting ourselves as pure, um, solid, good, and so on. Um, and we, I mean, we don't need to go into a discussion of, um, you know, Hitlerian thought, the Nazis, or the kind of function of anti-Semitism. The point is more that doesn't that kind of broadly capture another tendency, another flight from secular faith that presents itself, one which is different from the Nietzschean one of, um, of, of a kind of romantic throwing oneself to fate. It's different from the Stoic um, withdrawal from the world, which includes forms of Western Buddhism and mindfulness and the rest. Um, but is a third kind, it's another kind of, of escape and an attempt to, um, yeah, to, to kind of, to not grapple with a lack of control, a lack to not grapple with the real vulnerability of life and say, no, it's them who are vulnerable. It, we are solid. Yeah. I mean, and, and can we so, think of examples of this actually contemporarily? So what, what would the idea be that you project, um, you like your excuse for your lack of freedom is not the stoic one. It doesn't matter, but the Hitlerian, as you put it, one of like, there's an external agent, which is, simultaneously have to be... too strong and controlling me but also weak and i can over overcome but uh, that's just and i mean there it is just anti-semitism there is no you know this is famously moish Pistone's point right there is no other kind of um group that is simultaneously kind of um you know corrupting weak and insidious and all-powerful at the same time yeah. that's only the jews kind of only occupy that place in this um in those kind of um fant- you know fantastical um, kinds of outlooks so um the but the, that question about whether or not the you know this recourse to weaknesses outside you know the way you deal with weaknesses by projecting it onto others i'm not it's a good question i'm not sure there is like one you know that there is an obvious kind of um political group or social force that 
embodies or you know bases its claim on that um beyond you know beyond anti-semites in their various forms i mean i guess they... forms of, for, i would say forms of populism today and especially kind of conspiracy theory does that as well because it says no we the people actually are uncomplicated not contradictory we are solid and good um earthly uh moral and so on and it's these corrupting elites but of course that is just a form of sure. anti-semitism i, I mean that I is just a, a coded form of anti-semitism I think that's well. I wouldn't say populists are anti-Semites. I think, but I also I think, think populists are anti-Semites. To to extend it to populism, I think is stretching it because I think the a lot of the populist claim is also based on vulnerability. You know, the overlooked kind of Rust Belt, um, the rights of majorities that have been overlooked in favor of minorities. But fair and what have is you. that not Hitler as well? I mean, Hitler as well as you know, Germany has been screwed over here. Um, we are, you know, we well, are fascism victims. has. Yeah, fascism has a populist element to it, but I mean, it obviously has much more than that, right? So, um, and, you know, it has ultimately that the the claim to kind of victimhood is not, I don't think it's at the core of, um, at least it's not at the core of the appeal of Nazism. Whereas I think it is an important mm, part of the appeal of I populism. Think that's I think that's fair. I think that's fair, but I guess the... I, the to bring us back to the question, because the question is not um, who is like a Nazi today, <laughs> obviously, but rather... Because <laughs> that's a very easy... Yeah. That's a very easy answer. You're the Nazi. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Um, but, but rather, I'm certainly the fooder. Um, but anyway, the, the, what I, the, the question I, is more, is this not a kind of general tendency that we can identify um, in, yeah, in society? Yeah, I don't think... You, I, so I'm, mm. I just think beyond anti-Semitism, I don't think you can really. I think it is still just anti-Semitism, basically. That's what it is. My take would be, like, to the extent that it's part of a general tendency, the tendency would be the flight from freedom or the disavowal of, like, the the ability to be free and that you have to project a lot of, like, external constraints or objective constraints or, like, things into the world which mean this is the reason why you can't adopt your freedom and, and can't take take kind of you know your political role of various sorts but that might be me very much projecting my own concerns onto onto this question but i think this is you know if, if that's where this like where this question comes from that you're asking alex is essentially like what he's trying to do is is outline this this particular view of freedom which starts in secular faith then all of the bad faith responses from, you know, religion, uh, from kind of Abrahamic religion or Buddhism or Nazism or whatever, they are all sort of symptoms of the same problem, which is grounded in in freedom ultimately. Then I'm I'm quite sympathetic to that because I think there are, you know, it is the it is the existential question that we sort of face today. Maybe this putting in grandiose terms, but like, are we prepared to? face up to the possibilities for freedom that we that we do have in society today and it's obviously quite a scary prospect because it's quite a you know quite a big thing to do well put george and i think we'll um, end this here um if you guys listeners think of examples of the things we've been talking about whether it's that uh, hitlerian externalization or a stoic withdrawal from a the world or withdrawal from commitment um things that we might have missed out as contemporary examples let us know um i think it'd be interesting to carry on the discussion on those terms um and of course we will be back with uh, the next one in a month's time where we will be discussing chapters four and five um I'll post about this on the Patreon um, briefly, shortly. Um, but uh, 
thank you all for listening. Thank you all uh, recent joiners um, who've come to the Reading Club. I hope that this has proved uh, enlightening, interesting, and, and all the rest. Uh, let us know what you thought, as usual. And uh, we will catch you next time. And just a final shout out for uh, the local Reading Clubs. If you want to get in touch, do get in touch. Um, info at bungacast.com or via the Patreon messaging. Uh, a whole range of cities uh, in North America, Europe, and uh, Australasia who uh, either have reading groups formed, who would be willing to, you know, have new people join or um, are people there looking to meet others uh, just like yourself to discuss uh, this in person. So I um, hope you are able to take that forward. We look forward to hearing from you and we will be back with another Bonus Cast Reading Club in a month's time. Catch you later. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.